Kiora Koto. I'm Brent Giblin, and you're listening to Faux Heritage Stories, a series of talks presented by historian Lisa Trutman with support from Faux Local Board and Auckland Libraries. Prepare yourself for tales of horse races, lost guns, World War I adventures, and more in this exciting series. Today, we find out about the origin of the legendary Māori Battalion. It starts when New Zealand's first Māori contingent assemble at a camp located on the racecourse in Avondale in October 1914. So lend us your ears as we wind back the clock to a time when New Zealand was expected to help its allies fight what became known as the Great War. Before this century, just about the only World War I camp anyone associated with the Avondale Racecourse was the Tunnelers Camp, mainly because folks around here thought that while the Tunnelers were there, they dug practice tunnels throughout the racecourse, and that's the reason why the racecourse, people said, was so well drained. I can tell you I've been down on the racecourse at a race meeting in the middle of the winter, and it is not terribly well drained. The track can get dead rather quickly, but anyway, that was the belief. Other earlier camps stretching back to the latter part of the first decade of the 20th century were largely forgotten, but nearly 500 men almost immediately preceded the Tunnelers, their training extending from October 1914 to February 1915. They were New Zealand's first Māori contingent, the start of the Māori Battalion. Mentally place yourself back to a time in New Zealand's history when we were a reasonably new dominion within the British Empire. And most people felt that we were a white dominion. Where it was still presumed that it was only a matter of time before the Māori people, their culture, their language would simply fade away. That the race of Māoridom simply required a soothing pillow on its deathbed before it would only be a memory. There were some rekindled fires which kept the flame of Māori culture going. The King Movement was one, schools such as Te Aote College, Māori participation in sports such as rugby. In the main though, Māori culture was seen as just something that could differentiate New Zealand from the Aussie cousins. And it was popular with tourists. Māori land was another name that people called New Zealand, but they didn't really mean it as the land of the Māori. Two days before the First World War was declared on the 4th of August 1914, Taranaki Te Ua, connected with a young Māori party football team in the Hawke's Bay, said, I notice that a dark cloud is rising on the horizon. It may burst at any time, but I tell you that the few drops of blood that are still left in the Māori veins will be used to defend the British flag if the occasion arises. Just two days after the war declaration, the Māori members of Parliament declared their desire of a Māori force going to the war by telegrams to the government. By 7th of August, all 40 students of the Gisborne Tero Māori Theological College volunteered themselves for military service. On the 18th of August, local Taumanui Māori asked that they be given rifles, ammunition and an instructor to train them in order that they too could join the fight. The initial policy of the British government, though, was not to have non-white races 
taking part in what they termed the wars of the white race against a white race. However, by early September, an army of Indian troops had been raised to serve at Suez, and the French had raised forces from their Algerian colony. This naturally led a Dunedin North MP to strongly suggest to the Prime Minister, William Massey, in the House, that as Māori were prepared to volunteer as well, why couldn't they? The British acceded to the New Zealand government's suggestion later that month. The government's agreement, though, to allow Māori to volunteer for the expeditionary forces was not made without reservations, most of which can easily be viewed today as uncomfortably racist. Sir Joseph Ward reminded the Minister of Defence that, quote, the bulk of the Māori people was beyond the limits of the existing system of military training. And although there were Māoris enthusiastic to go forward, they were in greater need of training than the Pākehās who were volunteering. He suggested that concentration camps be immediately established, and that's quote-unquote, concentration camps, be immediately established in Māori districts for the training of volunteers. The idea of having training grounds in provincial districts, though, was probably dropped due to logistic difficulties. There were also doubts as to whether the Māori servicemen would be up to serving in Egypt alongside the rest of the expeditionary force. Even when the British gave their agreement as to Māori volunteers for the war, the New Zealand government were making counter-proposals, most likely involving the later plan to send only half of the Māori volunteers to Egypt and the rest sent to Samoa simply to serve on garrison duty. This was opposed vociferously by Sir Maui Palmare and his recruiting committee, by the tribes and by the contingent themselves, and was dropped on November the 7th, 1914. The newspapers uh, of the time interviewed surviving old campaigners from the time of the land wars of the previous century, and they had no doubts as to the battle-worthiness of the descendants of their former allies and foes. If they were sent to the fighting line, one told the Herald, there would not be a man of them who would shrink from laying down his life for the empire of which they are now a part. I know that these men would welcome any chance to bring new glory to the Māori race, even at the sacrifice of their own lives. There are many races in the British Empire whom we could not readily trust as soldiers in a crisis like this, but the Māori may be trusted absolutely. I would unhesitantly put them beside the Turoks who are doing such magnificent fighting for the French just now. Some doubts as to the wisdom of the Māori volunteer programme for this foreign war were expressed among Māori themselves. Indeed, not all Māori supported the calls for the Māori from the Māori members of Parliament. At a meeting at Pariora near Patea, the elders were, quote, were of the opinion that as no outside foe has ever invaded New Zealand, it would not be right for Māori to go abroad in defence of the empire. The Waikato was an area absent in the list published of areas from where the volunteers hailed. Choosing to abstain, <coughs> it was reported that Honui Tafio, son of the second Māori King Tafio from the 19th century, and uncle of Terata Mahuta, who was Māori king in 1914, said, quote, In 1864, after the Waikato War, my father appealed to his people at Alexandra, Perongia, 
and the presence of Major Mayor to give up fighting. Before he died, he impressed upon us that we should never allow our people to go out of the country, that we should let them fight in defence of it, but never allow them to leave its shores to fight in a foreign land. Still, those words were uttered to suit the circumstances of those days. And in the present circumstances, I have no objection, nor has my nephew, Mahuta, to the Māori going out to the front to fight for our common king. In fighting for King George, they are fighting for our king also. Irrespective of the patriotism I may profess, there is always that racial love that exists in every man. Tafio saying this apparently held the belief prevalent then that the Māori were somehow a dying race and that the last remnants should go out and fight for final glory. The general feeling amongst those in the King movement in 1914, however, after a number of hui held around the region, was that no King movement supporter should serve overseas. Te Rata Mahuta himself publicly left it up to individual choice, but away from Pākehā hearing, he and Te Puia actively discouraged Waikato enlistment, and indeed there were no Waikato volunteers in the first two Māori contingents. But the concerns which were to dog the contingent most during their training in Avondale were those of health. More specifically, the risk of typhoid being passed from the Māori to the non-Māori population. Many European New Zealanders back then considered Māori communities as those at risk of epidemics and putting the general population at risk as well. Many in 1914 would recall the mid-1913 smallpox epidemic, described by the New Zealand Herald at the time as the Māori epidemic. The establishment of the smallpox isolation hospital under canvas at Point Chevalier and concentrations of Māori which seemed to spread the disease. And never mind that the 1913 outbreak was started by a Mormon missionary coming from America, Richard Shumway, who contracted the disease while on the way to New Zealand from Vancouver aboard the SS Zealandia. He thought he'd just got a bit of measles. He saw some spots on his arm. He thought it was just a bit of a light rash, some measles. On the 15th of April that year, he became very ill at Tehora, near Whangarei, where a hui was held. Those attending the hui then returned to their homes around the North Island, unwittingly spreading the disease. Now, in 1914, the Auckland Medical Officer of Health, Dr McGill, expressed his concerns that a large concentrated gathering of Māori in one place would almost certainly result in an epidemic, he said, given that, quote, the habits of the Māori are such that even with the strict supervision of a military camp, it would be difficult to prevent the spread of infection. Just as an aside here, nobody ever explains in all this thing what they mean by the habits of the Māori. But they always seem to say, ah, oh, yeah. Um, not just saying that as a, as a white, I like to think liberal, but it's just... <clears throat> he advised as to the dangers of collecting a couple of hundred natives in one camp or on one ship to Egypt. The danger would not only be to the Māori themselves, but to those who came in contact with them either in the camps or on troop ships, he said. Dr McGill felt that due to the incidence of carriers of typhoid and the risk of volunteers coming from areas where the disease was rife, inoculations would do little to prevent an epidemic breaking out. 
His concerns partly focused, unfortunately in today's eyes, on, as I said, the habits of the Māori, had apart from that a real basis. In 1914, it, it, 1914 itself began with 13 cases of typhoid under treatment at Auckland Hospital. January described then by the New Zealand Herald as the period of the year when an increase in the number of cases often occurs, especially in the districts not in, yet enjoying the benefits of an up-to-date drainage service. Avondale at that time was one such district in the greater metropolitan area. We were not connected up with the, with the main sewerage service. The cases at Auckland Hospital rose to 22 by March. In February, there were 12 cases and two deaths at the Māori settlement of Judea Pa near Tauranga and another 25 in the greater area around Gisborne. 12 more cases could be found at Tamaranui Hospital by March. By April, there were seven cases at New Plymouth, but these were of a mild type. The majority of cases did seem to arise from out of Māori settlements and the media splashed the word epidemic in bold type across their headlines. Dr McGill's department never publicly agreed with his concerns though. They did engage in an inoculation program for every volunteer in the Pioneer contingent that spring. By the end of September, Avondale's race course had been chosen for the site of the training camp, named Waiaturua, according to historian Christopher Pugsley. The Avondale race course managers gave army staff the use of all the buildings. Between the 7th and the 16th of October, the Army Service Corps were busy setting up the camp with all tents pitched by the 16th and a water supply, showers and sanitation were provided. Command of the camp was given to Captain Henry Peacock, promoted before the end of the year to Major, and Lieutenant Albert Edward Mills-Jones, formerly a teacher at St Stephen's Native School in Parnell. Jones actively enlisted volunteers in Auckland, acting on behalf of Moe Pomare and Te, Te Rangi Hiroa, Dr Peter Buck. Dr Buck joined the contingent as a medical officer. The first of the contingent arrived on Saturday the 17th of October. Divine service was held on the next day, conducted by one of two Māori clergymen in the camp, the Reverend William Keretene, the other clergyman was the Reverend Hone Wi. By the end of that week, close to the full complement of 500 volunteers were encamped on the race course. A number of the volunteers were young men from Te Ote College, Three Kings Wesleyan College and St Stephen's School in Parnell, with even a couple coming from as far as the Chatham Islands. This first Māori contingent was to be dubbed a Pioneer Battalion, with the intended aim of providing the skilled labour for the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. They wore a badge on their hats and shirt collars by the time they embarked for Egypt in 1915, showing a tayaha and a te crossed through a crown. I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> I don't mean to envy disrespect by mispronouncing, mispronouncing these words. Uh, with the motto, te hokafitu atu, the 70 twice told warriors of the war god too. This figure of 140 being the favoured size of the traditional war party or taua. Their training routine was well documented by the newspapers over the course of that summer of 1914-1915. To quote the newspapers, the morning's work starts with, and now I've got to pronounce this correctly, and this is an, is an English-French word, so... <laughs> 
because I'm so used to the American pronunciation. Ravelli at 5.30 o'clock. At 6.30, the troops line up for their first parade, which continues until 7.30, when they are dismissed for breakfast. At 8.45, sick parade is held. Then a two-hour instruction parade takes place when the men are dismissed for half an hour for spellow. Another parade from 11.30 to 12.30 brings the morning's work to a close when luncheon was a welcome change. At 2.30, they are hard at it again and are kept busy until 4.30. Rations are served out at 4.45 and dinner at 5.30 brings the day's work to a close except for those who have to do sentry duty. Guards and pickets are mounted at 6.30pm, two hours duty at which brings a welcome relief and change of guard. During the rest of the evening, the men do as they like. The contingent hadn't advanced in their training for formal inspection or march past by late October, but the Defence Minister spent over an hour watching their squad drills, speaking to a large number of them, asking where each one came from, his school, his military experience and so forth. The camp was open to visitors two days later when divine service was given in Māori by the Venerable Archdeacon Hawkins and Reverend William Gittos. By early 1915, the men were carrying out manoeuvres on One Tree Hill and at Penrose. They were issued their first uniform, khaki working suits or dungarees and slouch hats on the 23rd of October. The dungarees were similar to those issued to the field engineering companies, highlighting their envisaged skilled labour role once overseas. By January 1915, it was decided to kit the Māori soldiers in shorts, replacing long trousers. The new uniform was wide, well-cut shorts, putties or gaiters, and bare knees, and a drill tunic. Something still quite novel for the time, but actually essential for desert campaigns. Grocery firm at the time, Hutchinson Brothers, supplied the men with goods at town prices via an on-site canteen. It always costs more to get your stuff from the country. Avondale was the country, but they were offered town prices. Entertainment and morale was provided in part, in part by the community. The local residents proposed early in the camp's period of occupation to give the volunteers some concerts at an early date. I don't actually know if that actually happened, but they did actually offer. While a phonograph was installed in the canteen. The YMCA made arrangements to erect a large marquee in which a variety of amusements will be provided. Another marquee provided there was stocked with gifts of magazines and illustrated papers. In late October, the men set up hurdles on the racetrack and held a mile race with no less than 70 men lining up, with the prize only being with the winner's name be published in the Herald. The Women's Committee of the Patriotic League gave the contingent a parcel containing a cup complete cricket set with three bats, a football, punching ball, set of boxing gloves and a number of indoor games. That's handy because it can rain a lot in the, in the spring in, in Avondale. The League set about making inquiries into acquiring a piano for the camp as it boasted a big percentage of musicians. Three or four had violins, and during the lack of a piano, it was said the singers would congregate around the resident violinists. By November, they had their piano, and it was reported that among the contingent was a composer who intended to sit for the second portion of his Bachelor of Music degree. 
On the 12th of December, the contingent hosted a regimental sports day at the racecourse, including military displays, cycling and athletics, under the auspices of the New Zealand Amateur Athletics Association. These included 120 yards, 220 yards, half mile and one mile handicap races, and a one mile bicycle handicap race. For Christmas, it was decided to keep the contingent encamped at Avondale, but to allow relatives to visit them for a gala celebration in the new year. The Patriotic League provided plum pudding and fruitcake to all of the troops for Christmas. Lucky, lucky beggars. <laughs> nice. On the 6th of January 1915, after a formal welcome to the relatives and military display, a rush was then made to another part of the camp where a number of the natives had prepared five hungi loaded with pork, beef, potatoes, eels and other food. General leave was granted for the rest of the day. With such glowing reports of the training progress of the newspapers during the summer, it must have come as a bombshell shock to the general public when it was announced that typhoid had broken out at the Avondale camp. In bold type, on the morning of the day the men were due to embark for Wellington on their way to Egypt and garrison duties in the Mediterranean, the Herald announced that one soldier had died in the fever ward at Auckland Hospital and four more cases were known in the camp. Dr. McGill's September prophecy seemed to have come to place, to come to pass, sorry, much to the alarm of Auckland and to Avondale's residents in particular. Two locals had become infected, one who lived in a street adjacent to the race course and had been taken to hospital in the week before the troops departed. Another was a young boy. Uh, other suspected cases were under observation. Local chemist Robert J. Allerley, he had a shop next to what used to be the old police station, now the boarding house on Great North Road. He weighed in, stating that there could be little doubt that the spread of the disease to the civil population has been due to the presence of the camp. Such a large camp in the district, he said, meant that the danger wasn't at an end once the troops had departed. Sources of infection were bound to remain. He advised strongly against a second such camp being established in the district. The idea of sending out troops next month would be murder and every effort should be made to get the present plans altered. The farewell from Auckland then was a rather muted affair. There were no glad celebrations or public best wishes from this city for, for that first pioneer Māori contingent, apart from cheers from those who watched them pass by in Queen Street. To quote the newspaper at the time, the whole of the Māori contingent which is encamped at Avondale, undertook a route march today. They left camp by train at 2pm and disembarked at Mount Eden, whence they came to the city by foot. The body of men made a fine display as they marched down Queen Street. Of impressive physical proportions and fine soldierly carriage, they looked as though they could well be trusted with the traditions of British fighters. I, yeah, every, t every time I read stuff like this, I think to myself, yeah. Talk about cringe, excuse my expression. It was clear from their appearance that the period in camp had done wonders in making them into well-disciplined, alert and healthy fighting material. The streets along which the men marched were lined with people and the fine appearance of the Māori caused a considerable display of enthusiasm. They numbered some 500 and throughout their ranks there was not a man of inferior physique. A very large number of people gathered on the Queen's Wharf where the men finished their march. Unfortunately, a band was not procurable, but the stalled buglers of the contingent made a very good substitute. 
The Māori wore the full equipment of rolled overcoats, sidearms and rifles, but in spite of their long march along the dusty streets of the city, they appeared quite fresh and unfatigued, a tribute to the training that they have received at Avondale. It is stated that Auckland City did not do them honour. They were sent off without any public demonstration, one source said. In Wellington, however, parading in Newtown Park alongside the third reinforcements, the Māori contingent men were addressed by the Governor-General Lord Liverpool and the Prime Minister William Massey, according to a report in the Evening Post. After congratulating them on their fine appearance, the Governor-General remarked upon the fact that Europeans and natives were on this occasion to fight together, whereas a little more than a generation ago, British soldiers had had to come to New Zealand to fight the native race. The Māori on parades were a very fine body of men, and when they went to Egypt, he had no doubt they would uphold the honour of the flag and carry out their duties to their king and country. The Prime Minister spoke his congratulations and good wishes to the officers and men. Every right-thinking patriotic citizen, he said, must be proud of the willingness and earnestness with which the young men of our country have offered their services for king and empire. Referring to the Māori, he said that he was sure they would do credit to the warrior ancestors from whom they had sprung. The people of New Zealand would be just as interested in the Māori soldiers and just as proud of them as of those of their own race. After the white chiefs had spoken, two Māori chiefs, Te Huhu, head of the Taupo Māoris, and Kingi Topia of the Wanganui tribes, spoke words of exhortation to the Māori in their own tongue, with characteristic gesture and dramatic fire. They told their young men to be strong and of good courage, to face the foe without flinching, and to uphold the mana of the great white king whom they had sworn to serve. The Herald was apparently guilty of one piece of misreporting during all this. That fatality at Auckland Hospital wasn't a soldier. It was, according to Lieutenant Colonel W.H. Parks, it was actually a young schoolboy from Three Kings who was living in Oraki at the time. Back in early January, when Oraki relatives of the troops had planned to hold a celebration for them in response to the New Year's gathering at Avondale, this had been suddenly called off. This leaves three or four cases at the camp over the four-month period, plus the two Avondale locals reported and the unnumbered other suspected cases. Was this an outbreak, actually, or a part of the usual summer incidents of typhoid? It is notable that the Public Health Department didn't officially report an epidemic breaking out of Avondale or any specific mention of a higher incidence of typhoid in the locality in their reports to the House of Representatives. In fact, they commented that as at the end of the financial year, 1915, Avondale still had no connection to the main sewer at Arch Hill, the lack of which may have helped the disease to spread as it had. Bear in mind that during the previous summer, lack of adequate drainage was given as a factor. Also, the army did indeed inoculate the Māori troops against typhoid. It may have been that cases occurred at the camp not because of a concentrated gathering of Māori with the disease, but because of a mix of primitive local sanitation provisions. The arrival into the camp of carriers of the disease from the provinces, for whom, as Dr McGill said earlier, inoculations would be ineffective as they already had the disease, and cross-contact over the Christmas New Year period during the gathering with the friends and relatives of the troops. If typhoid was especially prevalent, and as a result of the camp existing there, it is amazing that there were not more cases reported. 
One more case from the outbreak, though, was reported when Major Peacock fell ill on the troop ship en route to Egypt and he had to be invalided back home. One case of typhoid on that ship. Ironically, the training was originally meant to be for only four weeks, as intended by the commander of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, Major General Sir Alexander Godley. Instead of four months, during that lengthy period, there were some desertions from the camps as troops lost patience with the whole deal. They thought this was just going on forever and ever and ever. Had training been of less duration, the outbreak may not have happened or received the attention that it did. The history of the Māori Battalion is well documented. The pioneer contingent initially served as a garrison on Malta, then joined the rest of the New Zealanders at Gallipoli on the 3rd of July 1915. Te the online history of New Zealand records, mounting casualties and the need for reinforcements on the Gallipoli Peninsula forced a change in imperial policy on native peoples fighting. The Māori contingent landed at Anzac Cove on the 3rd of July 1915. Here they joined the New Zealand Mounted Rifles, who were being deployed as infantry on the peninsula. Some Māori had been at Gallipoli from the beginning, having enlisted in the Provincial Infantry Battalions. One such man was 2nd Lieutenant Thomas Harmy Grace of the Wellington Battalion. An old boy of Wellington College, Grace was a talented sportsman. He played rugby for the, old New, for the New Zealand Māori team that toured New Zealand in 1911 and Australia in 1913. A noted marksman, he was an effective sniper at Gallipoli. He was killed on the 8th of August as the Wellington Battalion seized the crucial heights of Chinook Bear. During the assault on Chinook Bear in early August, 17 men of the Māori contingent were killed and 89 wounded. The contingent was involved in the assault on Hill 60 in late August and by September only 60 of the 16 officers and 461 other ranks who had arrived in July remained at Gallipoli. The return of sick and wounded members boosted numbers but when the contingent was evacuated from the peninsula with the rest of the New Zealand Expeditionary Forces in December 1915 it had only two officers and 132 men. During the campaign, 50 Māori had lost their lives. Te Rangihiroa recorded in his diary that the gallantry of Māori at Gallipoli had earned them the respect and admiration of the British troops. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order and nine other members of the contingent received military awards. Te continued, The Māori contingent was hit hard by events at Gallipoli. It was further shocked in August 1915 when General Godley dismissed three officers who had been arrested and charged of what amounted to be desertion in the face of the enemy. The three men had an unblemished record and had served the contingent with great distinction, but there had been an increasing friction between them and the contingent commander, Major A.H. Herbert. Eight officers, including Te Rangihiroa, called for an inquiry. They felt the charges questioned the honour of all Māori. One of those accused, Captain Roger Dancy, had been witnessed leading a bayonet charge and personally disposing of three Turks. The officers sensed that some mistake had been made. Godley ordered the three men home for unsatisfactory performance and decided to split the contingent up amongst other platoons of the New Zealand Infantry Brigade. He said that his decision was based on the need to reinforce other units and to allow Māori to fight alongside their fellow countrymen. In his capacity as an MP and a leading figure in the Māori Contingent Committee, Nata received many letters of complaint from Māori soldiers about what they saw as a loss of identity. Kua wehe wehe mato, 
We are separated, some said. He vowed not to recruit another soldier from the East Coast until the situation was remedied. In February 1916, Godley reorganised the New Zealand Expeditionary Force into the New Zealand Division and reunited Māori troops in the New Zealand Pioneer Battalion. By April 1916, the battalion was in France, digging trenches, being the original troops to earn the name Diggers from the British for their efforts, a name which was subsequently claimed and used by the Australian forces ever since. The original Diggers were Māori. But their path toward becoming an iconic part of our country's history, let alone military history, was set. By September 1917, the Pioneer Battalion became a full Māori unit, entitled as the New Zealand Māori Pioneer Battalion and readopting the Te Hokofitua Tu badge. At the Battle of Surrey, Bear and Gallipoli, they adopted Te Raubraha's haka as their war cry as they set about clearing the Turkish trenches. One of their number, Captain Pirimi Tahiwi, educated at the Otaki State School, Teote College and the Otaki Native College and a Māori All Black in 1913 debut, joined the Territorial Force in May 1911 as a private in the 7th Wellington West Coast Regiment. He was promoted to sergeant in August 1914 and became a second lieutenant the following month, so was one of the officers of the contingent. He would go on to lead the New Zealand troops in the first Anzac Day Parade in London April 1916. But it can and it should be remembered that one of the places where the legendary Māori Battalion began was a small semi-rural backwater in Auckland called Avondale. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this talk from Faux Heritage Stories. Stay tuned to hear the next episode. If you want to hear other author talks, concerts and in-depth heritage commentaries, Head to the Auckland Library's website to subscribe. Matewa.